Let's pray. Father, again, we are grateful for your word written in our language, words that we can understand, words that you have made to be understood. And we're grateful for your spirit to illumine our understanding so that we may know you aright, that we may obey you rightly, that we may worship you rightly. And we are so grateful that you are bringing time and history to your predetermined conclusion. And I pray that our hearts would be buoyed this morning as we see the eternal state, that we see what life is like in heaven. And as we hear these final admonishments and warnings as to what do we do with what you have revealed in this book. Help us to see you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week in chapter 21, we see that basically um, God has accomplished what it is that he has been setting out to do through history. And so he's able to come to the point where he says, it's done. Sin has been judged. Satan and his fallen angels have been sent to the lake of fire. You've had the final judgment of men. And so chapter 21 begins with the description of what does the new heaven look like. And we saw that uh, it's an incredible city, which is basically a huge home, right? Jesus told the disciples in John 14, I'm going away, I'm going to go prepare. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, I was raised with the King James, and that word is mansions, and mansion is probably very appropriate. Um, the city is huge, and it is illumined by the glory of God. You don't need a sun. You don't need a moon. You don't need lamps. You don't need electricity because the glory of God itself illumines this whole place. And because it's the glory of God, then what daily feature is missing? There's no night there's no darkness because God's glory never shuts off. God's glory is not like PG&E, you know, where all of a sudden, I'm sorry, I, you know, you're never going to get a notice in heaven. There's a rolling brownout. You know, better get your generator ready. There's no such thing as that. And the city itself is, in, is it's built for its translucence. The idea that because the glory of God is inside, then the city itself is built of materials where that light is able to pass straight through and it illumines everything, everything around it. Twelve gates in the walls, each gate made of a single pearl. Foundation stones that are laced with precious stones. And so you've got gates that have got the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on them. You've got 12 foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles 
on them. And there's no temple because there's no longer any separation between God and men. And it can be that way because there's no more sin. There's no more curse. There's no more sorrow. There's no more crying. There's no more death. Yay. Amen to that. You're right. Yay. God dwells now in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6, 16, right? He's inapproachable. Not then. The light is the same. His glory is not diminished in any way, shape, or form. What's changed? We have. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so when we get to chapter 22, the first five verses of chapter 22 really belong with chapter 21. So remember that John has been getting a guided tour of the new Jerusalem from one of the angels that had one of the seven bowls. And so that tour concludes, it continues and then it concludes in the first part of chapter 22. And so he's gone through, and again, there's one more thing we probably ought to talk about. There's those who are in. Who's in the new Jerusalem? The redeemed are in. They have the right to be there. Who is out? The unredeemed are out. And we're going to need that when we get to the end of this chapter. So the redeemed are in and they have the right to be there. Now that draws back. I didn't put this in the notes and I got to pull up where it's from. It is from Hebrews 10, where it talks about um, we are to, we are able to approach, we're able to draw near to God, all right? The reason that we're able to draw near, that drew on a term that was used in Greek society, you had the ability, you had the right in order to participate in public discourse because you were a citizen. Therefore, you had a right in order to uh, participate in the processes there of, of government and all. We have the right, we have been granted by God the right to come into his presence. That is a right Meaning, all right, what make, uh, let me back up. What makes something a right? What's a right? Okay, privilege. Something that's granted. A legal tone to it in what way, Vitaly? It's freedom to do something 
Okay, there's the, and there I think is the real uh, crux of the matter. Um, it's a freedom and it's something for which, um, it's an activity, it's something, a privilege that you've been granted for which you cannot be punished if you exercise. All right? Pardon me? It cannot, cannot rightfully be denied. Okay? So the idea here is that we as believers have been granted certain rights by God that are not granted to others. And so some of the privileges, some of the rights. So think of that. I want you to think of this word here and just run with it for a moment. What rights have you been granted as one who is redeemed? You have been granted the right to be called the son of God. A son of God, yes. What else? We can be in the presence of God. And in fact, you can even carry that further, right? Not only can we be in the presence of God, we should be, right? You have the right to be a joint heir of Christ. You have the right to call God Father. The right to come into the Holy of Holies and stand before him. All of these things have been granted by God to those who are redeemed. They are excluded from anybody else. Okay, so the question is, do we have the right to forgiveness? <laughs> All right, so who is going to be a question there? So the idea here, on the one hand, you would say yes. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you're, you're asking something from God that has already been granted, right? Because as redeemed people, how many of my sins are still counted against me? None. Not only have they been forgiven, they've been what? They've been paid for already. Christ has already suffered the wrath that was due to me. All of it. All of it. And so I, I do not have to go through life waiting for an axe to drop or the other shoe to fall. I don't know how you react to facts like that. There's a part of me that wants to turn into a blubbering idiot. All right? There's another part of me that wants to come out of my skin. 
Because again, these are, these are blessings that are granted by God. Chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. Now, this is hearkening back to Ezekiel chapter 47. In Ezekiel 47, you're going to find that in the millennial kingdom, there is a huge temple in the millennial kingdom. And coming out of this temple is a river. And it runs to the east and it runs to the west. It runs to the Arabah and it runs to the Dead Sea. It goes to the Great Sea and to the Dead Sea. And in fact, Ezekiel uh, measured this water. It starts off as a, you know, as a, as a little, not a trickle, but there's enough there to measure. And then he goes out for a ways and now it's up to his ankles and he goes out a ways further. Now it's up to his knees and now he goes out further and it's deep enough to where you can swim. Now, in the millennial kingdom, that river comes out of the temple. Here, there is no temple. And so what's it coming out from? The throne of God himself. And this river, and now, so it's a river. So what does that, what image does that bring to mind? Flowing living water in what quantity? See, yeah, deep and wide. The idea here is that when there's a river, you don't have to worry about whether or not there's enough for you or for me or for anybody else. And so here you have a, a river of the water of life. Now, the water of life is never really fully explained. The idea is, is that those who partake of it have eternal life. It is similar to the tree of life in that way. Now, the tree of life isn't very far away. Because on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, where have we seen the tree of life before? It was in the Garden of Eden. And in fact, its presence in the Garden of Eden required Adam and Eve's removal after the fall, right? What was the danger that existed for Adam and Eve in the garden in a fallen state? Okay, they would eat and live forever. What was the problem? They would live forever unredeemed in their fallenness. And so the, the expulsion from the Garden of Eden was actually what on God's part? It's mercy. I don't want you. 
to fall into that state. And so to protect you from that, you're going to leave the garden. Well, there's no more fallenness. And so because there's no more fallenness, you can eat from the tree. The idea that it bears its fruit, 12 kinds of fruit in, in every month. Now, are there months in heaven? I would say probably not, all right? Because again, it, this is eternity. What's the point that this tree bears its fruit in every month? What's the point? It's always in season. Always. Always. It's always available. And it's plentiful. Because there's not a tree of life. There's a bunch of them. Because they line the river. And so, and in fact, this tree... The idea here of its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, anybody got a good explanation for the leaves being for the healing of the nations? It's interesting, the word healing here is the word from which we get therapy or therapeutic. And the idea here is not necessarily um, focused on healing. That's not the only way this word is used. And in fact, if you, if you look at, the, at where, where it is and where it comes from, it's more the idea of its voluntary service. It was often used of somebody who was an attendant. And so this is, uh, it can be used for ministering to somebody. Now, is anybody going to need healing in heaven? No. Why not? I'm sorry, say that louder. Okay, perfect bodies, and there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more death. All of those things are gone forever. And so the idea here is... It's, it's a means of enrichment. It's a means of uh, fulfillment. And it's for all. Well, okay, the word nations is ethnos, which is, again, often used for Gentiles. It's used for, you know, describing humanity as a whole. And so the emphasis here is, again, this is, it's, it's on its eternality. This is, this is this way, and it's going to be this way forever. There's not going to be any change. There's never going to be the need for change. Keep reading. There's no longer any curse. You can go for a long time just on that verse. 
the things that we suffer now. No more. <laughs> the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants, that's us, will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now that idea of names being on foreheads, that's the idea of ownership. We belong to him. And as such, we have the right to be in his presence. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And so again, the, the emphasis here is on the eternality of this place. There's no end at any, at any point in any way. So verse 6 He's seen the new Jerusalem, and so now we're moving into, and, and, and John again, he has seen the, the final judgment of sin. He has seen the final judgment of unrepentant men. He has seen the final judgment on Satan and his angels. He's, you know, we've gone through the millennial kingdom. We are now entering into uh, the eternal state, and so the idea of heaven, as, as we would understand it, and so he's come to all of those points. And now, verse 6, we transition into, what do we do with it? How do you respond to this? You have been granted the privilege of being able to see behind the curtain as to what happens in time. You're, you're, you're being given the ability to read the last chapter of the book. Now, what do you do with it? That's what the last part of this chapter is about. So first, he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Let's, let's carry on, and then we'll, we'll tie that in with something else further down here. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Who are the bondservants to which this has been shown? Because it's plural. You see, go ahead, Shri. Okay, it's the redeemed, but specifically in context, who is it? Who was this being? It was being revealed to who singularly? John, for what purpose? To write it down and give it to the churches. Okay? That's the reason for all of this. John, I'm showing this to you so that you will write it down and then you will give it to the churches. So the churches, the believers in those churches, are the bondservants. Verse 7, And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And we'll stop there. So John is the one who, who saw and heard the things that have been recorded. So, again, what was John doing? He was being, he was basically taking dictation, right? Because again, as we have gone through and read this book, what do we see? John is recording observations of things that he has seen, things that he has heard, things that he has been told, and he has written them down. Notice that John is not offering commentary. He's not offering color commentary. If you watch a sports broadcast, you've got somebody who's announcing and you've got somebody who, you know, who's bringing background and all these other things. John's not doing that. John's not interpreting. He's writing. There is one occasion where John is told to not write. And that occasion was when? It's in your notes if you want to look. Back in chapter 10, he heard seven peals of thunder. And he was about to write. And he was told, you don't write that. So that, we're not given. What was said? Beats me. We weren't told. I don't know what it was. Frankly, I don't need to know what it was. If I needed to know what was said, where would I find it? I'd find it in Revelation chapter 10, where he was getting ready to write it. So that, that's one of the secret things that belong to God. What's the rest of the book? That's right, the rest of the book is revealed things. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may obey the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. So the idea here is we have been given revelation. What are we to do with it? It's already been said. Okay? Blessed is he who heeds. What does it mean to heed? Okay, so pay attention. What else? Obey, do it, right? I'm driving down the road and I encounter a sign. Bridge out. How do you tell who heeded the sign? More specifically, how do you tell those who did not heed the sign? Okay, exactly. Those who heeded are not in the bottom of the canyon. They're not in the river or whatever it is that's over there that the bridge is going over. They're not there. When you look over, and go, oh, you didn't listen, did you? We're to heed. Now that is true across the board. When God reveals something, it is always for a purpose. Always. Always. Now, let's take this a step further here for a minute. God has revealed these things. 
and he has an expectation for us, right? What's the expectation? Pay attention and do, right? As my mom would say, straighten up and fly right. There's an expected response. God expects us to obey. When something, so how does God view this book? Is it understandable for us? Is it a huge mystery that we're always walking about in a fog? Because, gosh, I just, I really, I want to understand and I want to do, but I just, it's just so confusing. So why do so many people treat this book as being so incomprehensible? Okay. Okay, so the point is, uh, the point being made is that there are things in there that we're not used to seeing. We're not used to seeing things that have wings and a bunch of eyes and fly all over the place. You don't watch Sci-Fi Channel, do you? No. <laughs> 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 Okay, so the point is there are a lot of learned men who come up with such drastically different conclusions. You've got post-mill, ah-mill, pre-mill. You've got all of these different things and you've got all kinds of different interpretations as coming out of this. Okay, right, so the point being here is that for those who are not redeemed, this is not a good book to read because it doesn't end well for you. And so on their part, you know, I, I don't want to do, have anything to do with this. Andrew? Okay, so Andrew's point is, is that that could be said of, of the rest of Scripture as well. So, you, Laura, you were touching on something that um, is a, uh, an issue. So, Laura had brought up the point that um, there are so many people who have come to such radically different conclusions about what this means. Most of the time, 
if you read different people, and by the way, this is true for any position here, okay? If you're just going to talk about the position, much of the way that people interpret this book comes out of the interpretive grid that they use to interpret much of Scripture. And so when you talk about... Um, What is the overall theme of the Bible? You would have some who would say, well, it's, the, it's, the, it's about God's glory. It's about God. You might have some who say, well, you know, it's about covenants and how God relates to man. At the end of the day, much of the time with this book in particular, there are a number of people who would use a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic to, trans, uh, to interpret and to understand most of Scripture. But when they get to this book, all of a sudden things just kind of twist. And because it is a, a highly symbolic book, there's a lot of symbolism in this book. But it falls prey to how does this fit into my interpretive scheme as to how God deals with people? Okay? And that can be true of just about any of those. So you don't want to fall prey to the idea, well, because I hold a premillennial view, then everything must be interpreted this way because otherwise it upsets the apple cart of my premillennial view. That's not a good hermeneutic, okay? Take the scripture for what it says. Uh, my wife will remind me of a saying from somebody that she encountered in Bible school 40-something years ago. You know, if the plain sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense, If you're going to allegorize scripture, you run into a problem. Number one, how do you know which allegory is appropriate? But number two, you've got to be able to explain everything. Because God's revealed it. And because God has revealed it, then what does that, how does that relate to me? I am responsible to know it, I'm responsible to understand it, and I'm responsible to do it. God's given it to me. And so, I need to be able then to take that and put it into practice. And so, that is why, again, in this book, have we encountered things that are difficult to understand? Sure, we have. Have we encountered things that you got to draw on other places in Scripture in order to understand what's being said here? Well, we've run into a lot of that now, haven't we? 
But as you go through this book, I mean, who invented language? God did. Is God capable of communication? And so the idea here is that he, what is the title of this book? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this isn't something to where, again, hi, we're going to hide Jesus over here. We're going to leave him in some perpetual fog so that you can have, you know, maybe, you know, you can catch his form once in a while, but you really can't understand. No. Some of the things in this book, they are difficult, but why are they difficult? Because of what they mean. And so, again, please don't get caught up in the idea that, um, you know, this, this, this book is, because it's so difficult to understand, that, well, somehow then it either doesn't apply to me, or, you know, I'm not going to do anything with this. What was this book, what was the intended reaction? What was the, int what was the expectation that John had for people who would be reading this book. Yeah. Repent. Put into practice. Three times in this chapter, in this last chapter, I am coming soon. I'm coming quickly. Who was this book written to? The immediate context? The churches. So what's the message to the churches? I'm sorry? Peace? Heed. Be ready. You know, when you are uh, once upon a time in my former life, in the fire department. All right, I'll give you a specific example. I'm on my way to work one morning, and I come across an auto accident on the freeway on the Newcastle grade going downhill. And um, a little girl, young girl, I don't know, seven, eight years old, had been ejected through the windshield. She's outside on the ground. And she is bleeding profusely from her neck, from her throat. Now, I do have access to something that none of you would have access to. I have a radio. And I'm on that radio. Because this little kid, she needs more than what I can give her. And so I'm trying to hold pressure on her with one hand, and I'm barking in my radio on the other, you know, trying to get somebody to send the world so that we can deal with this situation. Now, what, when you're in the middle of something like that, what's going through your mind as far as, is there help coming? 
did I have a reasonable expectation that help was on the way? Yes. Dispatch had heard me. It's a different county, but I know that they're, they're sending people appropriate for, to help. Can they get there fast enough? When do I need them? Right now. When are they going to get there? What am I waiting to hear? I want to hear the sounds of sirens. I want to hear a whole convoy of sirens, right? It's when you're in the middle of something and this is difficult, this is hard. I need relief. This book is, the, is a message to those churches. Some of those churches are suffering. Now, some of those churches are suffering persecution. Some of them are suffering consequences for bad theology. Some of them are suffering consequences from just disobedience. What's the idea here? I'm coming. Hold on. I'm coming, and I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. And so it's intended to give them what? Hope. I think you ladies may have been talking about that at the prayer retreat this week, the last couple of days. That's the purpose for this. Sam. <laughs> to Sam's point, John jotting a little note saying, hey, listen, read the end of the book first. <laughs> so the idea here, again, this book was intended to be understood. How do you heed something that you can't understand? You can't, right? So again, the expectation was, you've got it in writing, you've got the same Holy Spirit over that, that superintended the writing of this book, is the same Holy Spirit who's over here helping to illuminate it to you, to illuminate it for you. And so the ex expectation is, you need to heed what's in this book, therefore, this book is understandable. Does that make sense? Have you found that to be true? Now, some of you have been in here for the whole time. Have you found that to be true? Okay, with teaching and direction? Okay, look. Okay, so, you know, tackling on your own is intimidating? It can be intimidating anyway. All right, please don't think that uh, I do not have... Uh, proceeding with fear and trembling in, in studying this book. But the fact of the matter is, unless you're trying to come up with something where we're going to spiritualize everything here, if you take it at face value as it's written, it's understandable. Vitaly.
Okay, now for the tape. <laughs> Vitaly made a number of points, all right, one of which being um, because this is at the end of the book. Now, we tend to think of Revelation as a book, and it was a book, but it's part of this book. And because it's at the end of this book, there's an expectation and, frankly, a need to be able to understand the rest of this book in order to be able to interpret, then, what is being said in Revelation. Revelation builds heavily, heavily on the rest of Scripture. I want to say there was 278 different references in Revelation to the Old Testament. And so there's, and, and covering the whole expanse of the Old Testament. And so you do have to be able to understand the rest of the book. Another of his points, and feel free to jump in here if I, if I get off track, is, <coughs> I'm already off track. Um, the idea of we in our day can understand some of the things that have been phrased here. For somebody living in the first century, the idea of being able to communicate simultaneously around the entire planet would be something that they would be utterly lost with. Now for us, that's not a problem now, is it? You know, somebody coughs in Afghanistan and you know five minutes later I'm reading about it on, on the internet right and so there are things in which um, they are easier for us perhaps to understand there are still things that are difficult for us and he, he made a point about you know if Noah were alive at this point because he had been part of other huge events in scripture you know how would he be able to to shed perhaps some light here on understanding this book am i am i okay there vitaly okay right so one of the other points that he did is that sometimes we just lack the faith because, because we can't wrap our heads completely around different things, then somehow does that call into question whether or not God's actually going to be able to perform it. Now, the fact is, and again, past prophecies. It was prophesied that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Was he born in Bethlehem? Yeah, he was. Was he born of a virgin? Yes, he was. Uh, he goes away to Egypt because his life is being threatened by Herod the Great. There are so many things that you can go back through and you can look and see that here are these prophecies and they have happened exactly as they were said, regardless of how unique or unusual those circumstances might be. You know who we ought to be like? Simeon. Simeon. Who am I talking about? Simeon, the old guy. Probably doesn't have any teeth left. He's so old. And he hangs out in the temple and he's waiting for something. See, Simeon had been told 
that he wouldn't die until he had seen the deliverer of Israel. And so what was he waiting for? I've been told, therefore, I'm waiting, and I'm waiting with expectation. I'm waiting with hope. It's gonna happen. He's in the temple when Jesus' parents bring him. And what's his response? You can take me now. Because I've seen him. His hope was realized. Right? Do we live in hope? Do we live with the sense of expectation that God's train is on track and it's going to pull into the station when it needs when it's time to we don't know when that time is but it's going to happen and we can live in the same expectation and the same hope that those in the first century did was their hope of Jesus's return realized in their lifetime no no it wasn't but what was did they have the grace sufficient for them to deal with in a godly fashion everything that they encountered yeah they did and what was the impact of that hope, that looking for his return, what was the impact on them? He could be coming right now. So, I'd better be about his business. I'd better be pursuing holiness. I'd better be proclaiming that message because when he comes, bad things are going to happen to those who are unredeemed. And so it spurred them to action. It spurred them to obedience. And it should be doing the very same things to us. If you're listening to this book, if you're going through and reading this book, and you're, <sighs> another day, something's wrong. And you know what? Something's wrong with you. There ought to be inside every one of us a divine cattle prod that has jolted us into reality. God hasn't saved you so that you can go do whatever you want, whenever you want, in the expectation that it's all okay because I've got fire insurance. And that, my friend, is a deception. And in fact, all right, let's... Let's move ahead. 
John reacts. Again, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, John's already been rebuked once for this in this book. Is John one who pursues personal holiness? I would say, yeah. He's on Patmos because of it. He's in exile because of it. So for John to do this again, I get the impression that what he is seeing is so overwhelming that he kind of loses himself in the moment. The angel said to him, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Now, I'm not a prophet, not in the sense of anyone who foretells, but I sure want to be one of those who heeds the words of this book. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, what does that call into your mind? At least what I hope gets called into your mind. Pardon me? Daniel. So Daniel goes through and he sees all of these incredible things, but what is he told to do? Seal up the words. It's not time. John, on the other hand, don't seal them. Now, it was interesting because one of the commentaries that I was reading made a point. If this book is incomprehensible, if it cannot be understood, then what also can it not be done with it? What can't happen with it? If you can't understand it, what can you not do with it? Pardon me? Okay, you can't obey it. You can't proclaim it. It's incomprehensible. So if it's incomprehensible, what in essence is it? It is sealed. If you can't understand it, if you can't communicate it, then as far as for practical purposes, it's sealed. Right? So what's God's expectation here? In fact, it's already been said. The angel said it. I'm here. I'm a fellow minister of those who heed the words of this book. Therefore, you've got to be able to understand it. It's not something that is beyond you. Time is near. Now, here's an interesting, and there's all kinds of ink that's been spilled on this one. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What's that about? The fact is, is that people who come to this book are going to have one of two general reactions. You're going to obey or you're not. Those who are redeemed obey. 
those who are unredeemed don't. As you look at your life, if the practice of your life is the fundamental continuation of rebellion and disobedience, then which camp do you fall into? Are you in the camp of the redeemed or the camp of the unredeemed? You're unredeemed. And your life demonstrates that. The same with the redeemed. You should, there should be certain things that, are, that can be visibly seen of you. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I suppose that there's a sense of that, but the point is, is that uh, there's been much admonition, there's been much pleading uh, in this book, and now it seems that it's, you know, it's becoming more of a statement of fact, that you've had your chance and, and you haven't. Um, do people come to the point where God gives them over to their decisions? Yes. That, can, that does happen. Right. So the, the point being that there were the, the virgins who uh, some had oil, some didn't. And now they've got to go out and try to find. The point is, again, Revelation is very good at communicating the urgency of now. This is not something that you leave for later down the road. Today is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. And so don't leave it for another day. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, appropriate for what Dave was preaching on last week. Outside, and, and by the way, dogs, again, Dave mentioned this in his sermon, dogs are not the cute little puppies like we think about, right? In the first century, dogs were the scavengers, they were... Uh, the hyenas, the jackals, um, you didn't take one into your home because it would probably eat you when you were sleeping, all right? The point is here again, those who are redeemed are in. Those who are not redeemed are out. And there's no mixing of the two. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. How interesting. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus alone is the God-man. That's why he can be the root, he can be the forerunner of David, and at the same time be David's descendant. The spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who hears 
say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And then this final admonition. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. What did he just say? Who suffered the plagues in this book? The unredeemed. Who has no right to the tree of life or to enter the new Jerusalem? The unredeemed. This idea of adding to or taking away from God's word, this isn't just from here. I've given you two quotes in Deuteronomy where you don't add to the words of the law, you don't subtract from the words of the law. So, adding or subtracting, then, is an evidence of what? You're unredeemed. Now, if you're a teacher of God's word, that ought to bring a moment of pause. It ought to bring a moment of pause to you, even if you're not a teacher, because is it possible to say, you know what, I'm just not going to go along with this part of what God says. Fundamentally, what am I doing? I'm subtracting. If I think that God's word is not sufficient and something else needs to come into play, what am I doing to God's word? I'm adding. Which means I'd better be careful here with how I treat God's word. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. So he, who is it that's testifying to these things? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah, it is. Questions? I'm sorry we didn't get to Matthew. Gunner.
So the question is, the, the tree of life lines the river, is that the same thing as saying that, you know, there's a garden? I think you could characterize it that way. I think you could. Anything else? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It's 10 after. Told you last week wasn't going to be repeated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how much we long that you would come again. And yet we understand that you're going to come in, in, in your time. There's a time that's already predetermined. And there are still people to be drawn in. There are still things that you're working out among people. There are still those that you're rescuing. There are still those that you are sanctifying. And so, Lord, we find ourselves in the same place, really, I would imagine, as those that got this letter straight from John. There's the, the expectation of hope that you are, in fact, going to make all things right. Thank you that you have given us so much. You have revealed so much to us that we're without excuse for not understanding what you would have us to do You've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing that holds us back from honoring you, from worshiping you, from obeying you, from proclaiming you. Father, thank you that you've revealed so much here that we, ha we have some understanding as to, as to what awaits after, in fact, you, you judge evil and eradicate it. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in our day, in our time, that we would, first of all, heed these words, that we ourselves would be uh, very diligent in pursuing holiness, that we would be diligent in proclaiming your truth, that we would be diligent in reaching out to those who are unredeemed. And so, Father, help us to, to not become complacent, to not be like those who um, kick it into neutral and coast, but that we would be active, that we would work while it's light because, the day, because night's coming. And the night for those who or unredeemed is horrible. It's just as horrible for them as heaven is blissful for us. We're going to have joy unspeakable. They will have agony unspeakable. And so, Father, help us to be about your business. 
Help us today as we come to our worship service that, again, we would be consumed with your greatness. That we would be in awe of your majesty. That we would offer you the praise of our lips, but that we would, offer, offer, we would also offer you our hearts in adoration and obedience. Come, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.